Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. This is Ray Habersky, and the interview that I recorded with Michael Kramer, the author of The Republic of Rock, Music and Citizenship in the 60s Counterculture, was a really fine interview with a very good historian. Uh, Michael Kramer has uh, given us a book that deals with um, sort of two sides of the, the 60s, late 60s rock scene. Uh, one part of it is in San Francisco, and it covers sort of different ways that people conceived of citizenship in different types of happenings, everything from, everything from acid tests to the Wild West uh, uh, concert that was uh, that never happened, but that brought together a fascinating group of people to try to make a festival that was similar to Woodstock. And then the second part of the book is about Vietnam and the way that rock music influenced and was used by the, by soldiers and by different communities in Vietnam, including a really fascinating story about a South Vietnamese rock uh, rock band that ends up, as Michael tells us in the interview, in Houston, Texas. So uh, the interview is uh, is uh, great because Michael is a really sharp guy and uh, definitely a book to uh, consider on any list that, that has um, for people who are interested in, in everything from music to uh, to contemporary American history. Well, Michael Kramer, thank you for letting us interview you on new books in intellectual history. And the book that we're talking about today is the one that came out recently, The Republic of Rock. Music and Citizenship in the 60s Counterculture. And Michael, uh, would you mind give us a, sort of a, a summary of your background, uh, where you grew up, where you went to school, some of your the intellectual influences that uh, sort of play upon you and, and some of your work? Sure. Well, the joke that I make in the beginning of my book is that I wouldn't be here if it weren't for the music of the 1960s. Uh-huh because my parents met on the way to the Newport Folk Festival in 1968. That's excellent. That is really good. Yeah, although they were not particularly countercultural, they they were involved in various political and just larger social questions, as many people were in the 1960s and early 70s. So that was one of the... One of the origins of how I wound up writing this book. Did they grow up uh, around the New York, the Connecticut area, New York area? My mother was from my mother was from the Boston area. Okay. And my father was from New York, but they met uh, at Columbia University. Okay. At, in New York, and uh, my mother had transferred to the School of General Studies. Okay. Yep. And wound up um, in Fairweather Hall, which was the history is still is the history department building during the 1968 student protests. All right. Yeah. So she she was pulled more towards the political side of um, the new left. Okay. And my uh, father grew up in Brooklyn and um, is a mathematician, and so he he wanted to just stay out of trouble mostly. But he, <laughs> he went he went to Columbia. They, they actually um, met a little bit uh, sort of just as he was leaving Columbia, and okay. he was in the Boston area. So I kind of come from. 
this mix of uh, Boston and New York. It's uh, <laughs> a, a Red Sox Yankee. I was going to say, yeah, dynamic. Yeah, <laughs> I'm a Yankee so. fan, so it's it's very straightforward for me. It's it's one or the other, <laughs> but I, I can understand that there can be a combination occasionally. Yeah, well, I grew up very close to Shea Stadium oh, yeah. when in the '80s when the Mets were just terrible. Before they before they got yeah before, before they won the World Series yeah. 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 And so I remember being able to go right down to Shea Stadium and get, like, box seats on the day yeah. of the game. Yeah, I remember that, too. I grew up Long Island, <laughs> yeah. and so I said the same right. thing. Yeah, we used to take the train in. Yep. Yeah, so so you know about that. So yeah. so I um, went to Columbia University as an undergraduate, okay. and the way I actually knew the campus by which building had been taken over when during the 68 protests. Oh, that's, now, why is that? Because of your mother? Because, my, because of my mother. That's great. So when you guys are touring the campus, did she sort of point these things out to you? Yeah. Oh, that's incredible. She said, now here's where the really, here's where the really radical uh, anarchists were over oh here in gosh. the math building. That's great. That is, <laughs> it's very cool. So, so that was my, you know, so I kind of had this sense of the, of, um, of the sixties mattering sure. from my parents. And, um, and as you probably remember, there was this interesting resurgence of sixties nostalgia and interest in the late eighties. Mm-hmm. Um, everything from the sort of, um, mass success of a band like the Grateful Dead right. to lots of reunion tours. I remember the Monkees right. re- reunion and the Jefferson Airplane reunion. Oh, God. And, that was awful, uh, though. I know. <laughs> it was. And, of course, I think in a way it was connected to the rise of Bill Clinton. Yes. Uh, as as a, a presidential figure yeah, and then being elected. Yeah. And there's something and good to study there, even. Yeah. That's right. Yeah, that's that's the topic of a, a whole other books. So, so I was just kind of coming of age in high school and college at that time. And, and, and um, so that was another kind of way in which the 60s was around as something to um, grapple with. Yeah. And um, I, rem- you know, I think as with many, many people in New York, I remember going to see Allen Ginsberg read poetry and um he always, you know, it was like a guy who, you know, he'd sort of like walk around the East Village and you would inevitably see Allen Ginsberg. It seemed like he was that's, well, Still, that's pretty amazing. Present. I mean, it's amazing yeah. to tell your students about that now, I imagine, you know. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah, there really were, was this, um, you could see either the living legacy of, of the 60s or sort of the traces of it. I mean, I remember walking past the building where, I think it was the building that the East Village Other used to be right. published from. You could see it kind of in fading print on right. the outside of the building. Right. Um, so, so I that was kind of my background, and and um, you know, and as with many people, I, I wonder if you're like this too. You know, I, I had an increasingly ambivalent relationship to the 1960s, mm-hmm. as as um in the 90s as one saw how some of that energy of that period played out in culture and politics and um and so um after i worked in music journalism then after college that was how i got really interested in music yeah um and i was working actually kind of during the the first great internet boom of the 90s okay and um, did a lot of thinking about music writing and, and cultural criticism and from writing and, and particularly about how it was going to be affected by the Internet. Really interesting. Um, 
And then I found myself always missing my deadlines because I wanted to spend more time <laughs> on yeah. on a particular story. Yeah. And that, that was kind of what steered me towards graduate school because I thought, oh, a dissertation. Here's a really long deadline for a story. <laughs> Good man. Exactly. <laughs> yeah. So, um, so I applied to various schools, and I, I had read um, the work of two people. I had read the, the work of John Casson, yes, um, ni- really kind of a 19th century Absolutely. Uh, U.S. historian, but with a re- real interest in popular culture. Yeah. And I had also gotten really interested in the work of Robert Cantwell, uh-huh. who had written that, that this was just after he had written this very fascinating book about a folk revival called When We Were Good. Yeah, it's great stuff. And uh, and I got really interested in North Carolina and in um, I had been doing a I had done a bluegrass and old time music radio show in college at Columbia. Okay. So I was sort of interested in the South a little bit. I was curious about that that um, part of the country. So I wound up going to graduate school at University of North Carolina. Yeah. Which was a great experience. Absolutely. And yeah. And um, and that was where I really started working on the book. And John Kaysen is there, right? John Kaysen is there. I think he says. I think he pronounces it Kaysen. Oh, Kaysen. I'm sorry. Yep. Okay. Yeah. Um, John John is there. He's still there, going yeah. strong. He's working. Uh, he's finishing up a book about Shirley Temple in the 1930s. Oh, cool. <laughs> and um, well, we forget and how important uh, she was in the 1930s, frankly. Exactly. Yeah. Right. Um, one thing I learned from John, which which has really stuck with me in my work, is John was the one who kind of explained that it was interesting to think about where people went to have fun. Yeah. Because a lot of historians and social scientists dismiss that level of human experience as, um, at best, a a diversion and at worst a kind of, um, you know, undermining of the real world. Right, it's pollution. John, yeah. Right. Uh, John had a really different perspective on it, which was that a historian could learn a lot about a time period by thinking about what people were getting pleasure from. Yeah, yeah. And, um, and that really stuck with me from his work. So even, even though he doesn't, he's not, although he came of age in the 60s, he's not a man of the 60s. Right. I mean, he right. is really kind of um, interested in a different cultural milieu. Um, but he was very supportive of my project as it in its dissertation form, yeah. I think because he saw that connection yeah. to, you know, how do we, how do we historicize and think about pleasure? Well, that's, that's really one. I wanted to ask you about that because I think you and I, we share a lot of, uh, I think common interests at a very fundamental level when it comes to culture and cultural criticism. And, uh, reading your book, I thought uh, so much about the stuff that, that that got me interested in movies when I was doing my dissertation. Right. And uh, same sort of thing. You, know, I, um, you do a nice job of writing almost thematic essays that blend really nicely together. But I was wondering, what what is that fundamental question that sort of drives you? What, what is that, that um, pleasure that, that you get out of, of researching this stuff uh, and, and how it relates to, you know, sort of the, the larger field of intellectual history. Right. Well, as with your work on movie critics, this project started out because of my interest in the history of rock music criticism yeah. And, yeah. and rock writing. That was kind of where it began. Yeah. And of course, the funny thing is that part of my work kind of dropped out of the book as it's narrative took shape right. as really a story about this dynamic 
of rock music circulating between San Francisco and Vietnam. Yeah. But but um, but I think I, I would wonder what you think about this. But for me, I was surprised at uh, how much the music had mattered to people. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and that they were making. I mean, that the people that I was trying to think about historically were making these um, very interesting connections between pleasure and deeper thinking. Uh, So for me, this particular, I mean, I think there's work to do also on when people are um, finding pleasure and they're not being intellectual about it. Um, Absolutely. There's intellectual work to do about that. Right. But But in this case, one of the things for me that was so striking I mean, the core question of the book at its most basic level is, why did this music matter so much? Yeah, I, I, yeah, I really, no, I, I love that. I, I love the fact that you played with that. I mean, part of the thing that makes uh, a topic like this so rich is that on one side, you can that people will say, but it's just music. You know, uh, people listen to it for three minutes and it's gone. But you're right. saying, yeah, but when you do this over and over again, when millions of people listen to the same songs over and over again, when a whole generation listens to basically the same genre of music over and over again, something does take place, something happens, and it's up to historians to at least engage uh, that something. That's right. Yeah. And I, th- I think for, for intellectual history, I mean, so one level of this is that, and, and I think y- your book on, on movie criticism is, is similar in this way, um, there's work for intellectual historians to do to notice what the people we're studying are taking seriously. Right, yeah. And, and you know, that's been, that's a very... Um, I think established idea in in intellectual history, at least in its more recent yeah. decades. Yeah. The 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 other level of it that I think you're pointing to is, for me, one of the things that I was struck by in in this particular book, <laughs> which lent itself well to the to the kind of psychedelic consciousness yeah. of the material, yeah. is maybe something like the question of scale. Yeah, yeah. Which is to say, I think people at the time noticed this and. And it's easy to forget when we think historically, but there was something really important to people about being able to move between what was going on in the, one person's own head right. or body and all the way up through different scales of human collectivity. Yeah. Yeah. From like what it meant to end up with other people at a concert or a dance yeah. or yeah. the acid test. Mm-hmm what it meant to be thrown into um, a platoon with other right. Vietnam uh, GIs. Or, you know, I think for a lot of people, it moved up to the level of scale where we have trouble kind of imagining the individuals anymore, kind of right. mass levels of scale. Yeah. So yeah. a person who listened to rock music reverberating out of huge amplifiers and and was on LSD. I mean, LSD, of course, lends itself to this kind of thinking, which yeah. would be, yeah. you know, kind of moving between the the micros, the the, right. the, the intimate level, the individual level, and the collective. The, yeah. the collective. I yeah. mean, of course, people at the time got were even you know trying to imagine planetary, cosmic <laughs> levels. I mean, you know, like, we we it's it's a little you know we we giggle about this stuff, and I think that's fine. But it is worth taking thinking. Yeah. I mean, well, I learned yeah. from some other historians that it's also interesting to take seriously these everyday 
grapplings with, you know, what does it mean to be not just a member of humanity, but a member of the universe? Right. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, and it, it, that kind of part of intellectual history is, is, um, is worth thinking about and is difficult to think about because it does sometimes get a little silly and that's okay. We have to be able to kind of work with the silliness and the seriousness at the same time. Well, I mean, just you're taking ideas both at their face value and you're putting them into a larger context that you know people are going to be uh, receiving uh, your explanations in. And I, I, that's what I appreciated about the book. I mean, you balanced, you understood that there is going to be a spectrum of ways that people respond to the music you're talking about and to the ideas that you found in the music and to the people that were relating to the music and generating new ideas. So, I, you know, again, I thought this was, uh, it was really an interesting model for how to, to mix it up with material that I just see very few historians really taking uh, the time to deal with seriously. Mm. Uh, so one of the questions I had, because um, I enjoy doing, you know, I think we all do. We enjoy doing research for different reasons. But I would imagine that you really enjoyed your trips to the archives and the people that you met. And I was wondering, could you just describe a little bit of the experience of, of physically doing the research for this book? Right. Um well, there were two, I'll tell two stories from, from the range of, of archives that I went to. I mean, to begin with, one of the funny qualities of the research that I did on the 60s counterculture was that in, a, in most history, you, it tends to be dominated by the archive, and there's you know, kind of a, a move by some to move to oral history right. and, uh, to recover other aspects of the past. In this case, I think a lot of the history of the 60s was dominated by oral history and memory. Yeah. And so going into the archive was a way to see and hear things differently. The, the, the two stories that I'll tell, um, the book is split between uh, the first half is about rock music and questions of citizenship in San Francisco, and the second half goes to Vietnam and thinks right. about citizenship in the context of the war zone. Right. And the first half of the book, uh, I had been um, at Northwestern the last few years and went into the, wandered into the Special Collections Library just to look up some things in the um, uh, they have a collection of newspapers from the 60s, underground newspapers. Okay. And one of the archivists there mentioned to me that they had the collection for the Berkeley Folk Music Festival, hmm. which, which was sort of the Newport Folk Festival of the West Coast. Co right, okay, yeah. It kind of ran on the Ber it actually ran on the Berkeley campus from the late fifties until nineteen seventy. Wow. Well, I knew from having done some reading around that the that the director of the Berkeley Festival had been hired in nineteen sixty nine to direct this what was going to be uh this big, huge free rock festival in Golden Gate Park. Mm-hmm called the Wild West Festival. And, Wild West, yeah. <laughs> which at the time, people were kind of, there's a couple of really funny articles where they talk about Woodstock yeah. as the Wild East, <laughs> which is to say it wasn't, it was thought of as the smaller festival compared to Wild West. Well, yeah. Wild West ended up getting canceled yeah. for this funny reason of not protests from the outside by concerned uh, citizens or the government, but actually by these protests by hippies themselves. Yeah, and it's amazing. Yeah. 
kind of disappeared. I mean, no one had thought about it. Well, I just kind of vaguely remembered that um, Barry Olivier, who had been the director of Ber- the Berkeley Festival and had been hired for this event. So the, I went and looked in the finding aid for the Berkeley Folk Music Festival collection, and uh, lo and behold, there were four boxes of material <laughs> Oh, on the Wild West Festival that Barry had kept that were uh, that literally had not been opened since he sold the archive to Northwestern in 1973. Wow! So this was just this incredible trove of oh, documents. Oh my God! Yeah. No. When you when you saw that, I mean, <laughs> what did you think? Oh, I mean, I just I said, well, there goes my summer vacation. Yeah. Right. Right. Because <laughs> it was a lot to go through, and and Barry kept all these handwritten notes on yeah. meetings oh, man. and these are, you know, the meetings of people who were becoming movers and shakers in the rock business. Absolutely. People like the pr- promoter, Bill Graham oh, and yep. disc jo- uh, the disc jockey, Tom Donahue and the various band managers. And it had these incredible um, documents from the protests among other hippies who developed um, these, you know, would print off these cheap flyers about how the Wild West Festival was a ripoff. And um, so the archive really had this just treasure trove of material to try to develop the story of this forgotten event. Yeah. Um, so that's, that was an, uh, an archive um, from the San Francisco material. And I think it speaks to one thing about this project for intellectual historians, for historians in general, which is the material is uh, multimedia. You know, there's there's not just text in there. There there are photographs and poster art. There are, um, actually, I found in another archive uh, some film footage of the Wild West, these meetings that took place uh, at the Glide Church in San Francisco, which were these organizational meetings for the Wild West Festival. Man, oh man. Um, yeah. So, you know, I think for for, um, for historians, and especially intellectual historians, how we handle uh, different modes of intellectual uh, communication right. is um, something that this book made me think about. Yeah. Not just, of course, music being a huge one, but also film and yeah. Um, and art, uh, visual art, and, and yeah. such. Yeah. The um, the other archival story that was fun and strange was there was one Rolling Stone magazine article from the early seventies about a South Vietnamese rock band mm-hmm. who had gotten very popular among both young Vietnamese in Saigon and G- young GIs. Um, and I just said, you know, what happened to this band? I mean, this is a totally fascinating story. Yeah. And, um, you know, very little archival. Uh, is this a CBC band? Is this... this is the CBC yeah. band. So, so here was a case where there, there was another part of the story that had traces in uh, the underground press and, yeah. and other places. That became a story about how one tries now to use the Internet to develop an archive of sources. Yeah. <laughs> because I was looking around just trying to figure out, you know, did, did this band get out of South Vietnam? Mm-hmm. Were they, you know, did they stay? Were they, are they even alive still? And I was wandering around on um, YouTube one day and came across a video <laughs> yeah. of the CBC band playing at their own nightclub in Houston, Texas, in wow. the nine, in the I think in the early two thousands, and I said, "Okay, here they are." Oh and man, 
that led to um, both uh, uh, some other footage of theirs on YouTube and finally actually getting in touch with them and going down and and interviewing them and getting to see their own personal archive of material. What was that like? I mean, did they they actually, had they kept and and actually traveled with stuff? They had kept and traveled with um, not too much, a couple of of, uh, scrapbooks of articles. Okay, well, great. And just really amazing photographs, some of which are reproduced in the book. Yeah, yeah. Some great photographs wow. in the book, yeah, and uh, and so that was the case again. I mean, I think the, the 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 role of the internet in opening up new kinds of paths to almost putting together your own archive uh, yeah. of material yeah. was uh, was uh, was kind of uh, an interesting story there, and 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 really led me back to this group, and then I was able to interview them and 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 develop their story of why had they fallen in love with rock music from America at the very moment when America was um, waging war in, in their country. Yeah. And, and so that, that was an, that, I think that became another interesting question about you know, what exactly yeah. is an archive and how do we develop, how do we, how do we put even kind of create one where one doesn't quite exist yeah i mean these these two stories that you just just uh explained i mean they they definitely point out the, the different directions that uh the project pulled you i mean it was uh you know you, you talk about a festival that could have been enormous but never happened and sort of the right. the, the, the uh, intricate dance that of democracy or of, uh, of sort of ideals in the counterculture that existed in the Wild West show that wasn't. And then you have this South Vietnamese band where, I mean, I don't know if you ever thought that you'd, you'd be pulled in sort of this really interesting transnational, uh, maybe trans-ethnic, trans-racial, uh, trans, you know, all these different areas uh, of culture uh, through this one band, through the experience of this one band. I mean, it's 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 great stuff, and it made for a fascinating book because of it. Yeah, I mean, I, I like that you're you're noticing one of the things that I got interested in is with this book was that, of course, this is a this is a time period and a topic that there's been an enormous amount uh, written about, mm-hmm. uh, documented. Um, Ossified into popular memory, but it's oh, it's the same damn thing over and over and over. Exactly. Again. Yeah. Exactly. And and I so that what kept and of course it, for me and this goes back to my own biography. You know, coming of age in the nineties, I was kind of interested in the failure of the counterculture. Me too. I didn't want to. Yeah. I, I I didn't want. Well, actually, let me rephrase that. I was I felt like there was a tired debate between those right. who wanted to celebrate the counterculture uncritically right and those who whether they were conservatives or whether they were uh, liberals who felt like the counterculture had led the left mm-hmm. astray right in the 60s and 70s there was either this extraordinarily dismissive protest against the counterculture mm-hmm. or a kind of uncritical celebration and it took going to these stories that were <laughs> kind of in the muck of, yeah. and lost from yeah. the popular memories of the period to recover what you talk about, which is this very delicate and fascinating engagement with questions of democracy. You know, the, the idea of the Wild West Festival was that it was going to be an artist-run festival. Yeah. 
and the organizers were just going to kind of set the gears in motion for artists to do whatever they wanted. Yeah. Um, and this ran into all kinds of problems about, well, who's in charge and yeah, yeah. who's making money and who's going to do the work and who's getting paid and who isn't. And, and really kind of, if, if this was supposed to be a festival for the people, who were the people? Yeah, no, that's a wonderful question. I mean, the counterculture raised some of these, these fundamental questions about what it meant to have uh, the intersection between art and mass culture, between the people and the organizers, uh, right. who's leading who. Yeah. Yeah. And especially when you get into the, the quality of rock, which I think comes out of the folk revival of the music being uh, made of the people, by the people, for the people, mm-hmm. you know, a kind of yeah. populist um, uh, uh, quality of belief in a genre like rock. And so yeah. the, the festival really, and the counterculture embraced this ideal of um grassroots music yeah. making. Yeah. And so that, um, I think that made these questions um, very important to people. But as you were kind of suggesting, it's easy for historians to either miss the story or almost kind of trample down the story yep. because it was a very, I think it revealed to me just how, vexing and vulnerable democracy is Mm -hmm. yeah right (laughs) you know i mean getting people to kind of agree on things and do right and and trust each other is uh is is no small task and and telling the story of how that hasn't worked is just as interesting as pointing out when it has right or celebrating sort of the, the 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 same almost the same tired notion we have of what democracy looks like when it succeeds and right. I think, you know, you've added different dimensions to that idea. Sometimes democracy succeeds when things fail, when things fail That's to right. materialize. Yeah. I have to tell you, I have to disclose that I grew up, I went to high school in Woodstock, New York. And ah. so, so um, I was around guys like Michael Lang, who was one of the promoters, right? One of the organizers right. of, of Woodstock. And uh got to hear sort of why they thought that succeeded. And it succeeded mostly because they had organizers from the city who um, uh, were very sort of dictatorial about how things were going to run and, uh, you know, barely got out without, you know, barely got the thing off without people dying, in, you know, in large numbers and and being, you know, really, really um, uh, sort of on the hook for a lot of, uh, of for a tragedy. I mean, they were, they were lucky right. overall, right? But one of the things that I thought was so nice about reading through your book was that the things that I had sort of grown up with in high school and college, um, as I became more aware and more maybe sophisticated in my understanding of capitalism or democracy, was that, you know, you you saw it wasn't just that uh, the counterculture had been hoodwinked or had been, you know, had given up on certain values in order to embrace sort of a, a classic idea of capitalism but had generated a new dimension to the things that a lot of people simply thought that they understood, like capitalism, democracy, consumption, consumerism, uh, even rock music, you know? Right. So if you wouldn't mind, one of the things that I think you you make, you know, a really big contribution to our our field is in some of the terms that you use. So I was wondering if you you could talk just a bit about hip capitalism and hip militarism. Mm Mm-hmm. Right. So this is the other part of the argument of my book that we haven't talked as much about, although we've been circling around it and thinking about mass culture. Um, I was very influenced as a 
a historian in training by Tom Frank's book, The Conquest of Cool. Mm-hmm. Me too. Which, yeah. which um, most people know about, but if, if they don't, this is the author who went on to um, write, uh, he was, uh, wrote, uh, What's the Matter with Kansas? Right. This is the book that was his, um, it grew out of his dissertation. Yeah, American Studies dissertation, history. yeah. Right. And it was a history of um, the advertising industry in the 60s. Mm-hmm. And what Tom Frank noticed was that the advertising industry, rather than being uh, appropriators of countercultural uh, ideals going on in the street and you know stealing them from Madison Avenue, actually turned out to be in some ways generating this new uh, idea of selling products based on their association with rebellion against mass culture. <laughs> <laughs> Lovely, so he, wonderfully ironic. Yeah, which, yeah. Yeah, this kind of and and you know this. I think this is very much a book of the '90s, yeah. in the sense that that was a moment when there were, were a lot of people kind of grappling with how advertising had had gotten even more sophisticated mm-hmm. in its ability to take protest and 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 co-opt it. So 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 Tom's. Tom Frank's book is is kind of asked historians to think more carefully about our assumptions about co-optation, and particularly this really simplistic idea that you had some kind of authentic subculture, which was then co-opted, appropriated, incorporated into the um, culture industries and mainstream culture, and then a new subculture came along, and and it was appropriated. And he asked us to think there's something more complicated going on here, um, in the night, in the '60s and afterwards. Yeah. In my book, what what I wanted to do was to look more carefully at how people in the counterculture responded to the kinds of shifts in consumer advertising and marketing strategies. Which is to say, I noticed in my source materials that people actually were pretty aware that they're that they were complicit in the system. Right. Um, only a few, there were, and I think what got taken up in the history after this, during and after the '60s, were a few people. I don't know, someone like Abby Hoffman or the more strident kind of countercultural, self-appointed countercultural leaders who made these claims, you know, argued that there was some authentic culture that was co-opted. Mm-hmm. Most people, when you dug down deeper, were sort of aware yeah. <laughs> that there were things going on. Yeah. And so the, the term hip capitalism comes out of the 60s counterculture itself. People are trying, or, there's a couple of really interesting essays, and then a sociologist writes about the, this radio station that I also write about, KMPX. Yep. She does a sociology dissertation in the in the 70s called hip capitalism, which um, which all kind of reflect this sense of people at the time grappling with the way in which marketers and advertisers were really perfecting the ability to sell the feeling of rebelling and being different from the mainstream. <laughs> as a new kind of niche market within the mainstream. Yeah. Um, so, so in San Francisco, what I was interested in was how people grappled with the questions of democracy and citizenship within this change to new operations of capitalism and consumerism, which were less driven by trying to create one mass market, but rather 
by strategies of fragmentation and stratification and yeah. niche marketing. Yeah. And and the counterculture you could say is a kind of was a kind of niche market. Yeah. At one level, but it also, of course, was other political things. Yeah. And so that was a story I wanted to tell. Going over to Vietnam, and this took a while to kind of figure out. Um, what I discovered yeah. in the National Archives, again, it came out of archival work, what I discovered in the National Archives was this very strange story of the CMTS, the Command Military Touring Shows, right. which were a unit of the entertainment branch of the U.S. military in Vietnam that was charged with recruiting uh, active GIs, organizing them into bands and other kinds of entertainment troops and then sending them out to entertain fellow troops mm-hmm. on um, for 60 days on like temporary duty. And there were these um, rock bands that the CMTS had organized, um, which were essentially psychedelic rock bands playing the latest countercultural music from, as they said, back in the world, back on the domestic home front. Yeah. And so what I started to notice was that the military, it seemed, the military administrators of the Vietnam War seemed to have picked up a little bit on some of these strategies of marketing uh, rebellion um, that were going on on the home front and tried to bring them to Vietnam in what really was a, a kind of desperate effort to raise troop morale. Yeah in a war where particularly young uh, soldiers were um, were famous, famously um, disenchanted with, you know, they weren't necessarily anti-war, but no. they were disenchanted with the their situation. And sure, morale, in sure. Viet- morale in Vietnam was very low. Yeah. So hip militarism was this tactic of that the military adopted from hip capitalism uh-huh. on the home front to try to, uh, in a sense, do what the military had always done in the U.S., which was to bring it, to raise morale by bringing a taste of home to uh, GIs uh, in the theater of war. Yeah. And in doing so, the taste of home was countercultural music, and yeah. so the yeah. military tried to get hip. Yeah. Yeah, it's great. <laughs> it's great because uh, if we think about both capitalism and materialism as w- what we largely and often do as being overall negative, uh, it, it simplifies what is just incredibly complex or very complex terms. And mm-hmm. um, and I think what you do is you have these 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 two rather uh, almost counterintuitive organizations playing upon these terms. Uh, in ways that are surprising. That's right. And, and I think, as you're also suggesting, not just a negative, but no. um, right. hit capitalism and hit militarism turned out to be productive right. of more than just uh, co-opting political in- engagement by everyday people and that is because <laughs> the, the, these everyday people these the, the folks that you that you talk about had some agency in what was going on I mean they, they, they right. shaped their world so that's what I want to get to next so when you, you use these really interesting uh, sort of uh, intellectual terms that are devices but what you're getting at is this sort of deeper understanding of how people interacted through them so can you talk a bit about how you sh- how you use citizenship because it, it's I think it's a much more uh, fluid and and perhaps expansive term 
than what mm. you might find in political theory. Let's put it that way. Right. That's a great question. That was um, a, a, another part of this uh, project that might be of interest to intellectual historians was that I had to do a lot of theoretical reading and thinking about the terminology that mm-hmm. I was going to use and right. how I was going to use it. Right. And that led me through, uh, you know, the work of Jürgen Habermas yep. and, um, and John Dewey and Walter Lippmann and um, all the kind of post-Habermasian theories of the public sphere, both in Europe and in the United States. Uh, and a lot of work in cultural studies as well. I worked a little bit with Larry Grossberg, mm-hmm. at, who had worked on rock music himself um, when I was at North Carolina. And and um, that led me, of course, into the world of British subcultural studies mm-hmm. and Stuart Hall and, um, and, and trying to kind of make sense of those very sophisticated ways of grappling with questions of popular culture and politics. Um, hmm. What, uh, for me, what I got most interested in with the, with the idea of citizenship was thinking of it as more than just a narrow definition of legal right. rights and obligations. Um, rather, thinking of citizenship along the terms of what some political theorists were describing as cultural citizenship, yeah, right. mm-hmm. which, was, which was to say, you know, what is the fabric of uh, civil society in its broadest sense that that undergirds something like a democratic legal and political system. Yeah. And that was the level at which I thought the stories I was trying to tell about rock music and the counterculture mattered. Yeah. It's not the only way in which they mattered, but for me, they seem to be moments and places where people not only we're thinking about voting, but we're thinking about the very deepest questions of political life and exactly. about civic life exactly. and how right. what what it meant to be a citizen, what right. it meant to be well, a com- what it meant a community to be even yeah yeah what it meant to be and, and different kinds of citizens, what it meant to right. be an American citizen right what it might mean to be a citizen of the counterculture yeah. what it might meant mean to be a, well, a citizen of the world yeah. Um, the to be a participant to to have some kind of um, something to say and hmm. something to hear about this larger conversations about power and yeah. community and that got you to that, some yeah some really interesting I mean you, you also had to deal with the idea that when you think about the counterculture there's both this and I, I think you did this really well there's both this communitarian element and a libertarian uh, element that's right yeah. well that grew out of I, I think some she doesn't get included that much in a lot of historical work, but the work of Rebecca Clatch, who's okay. a sociologist, All right. who Good. did this wonderful work on, on the intersections of the, libert- of the libertarian counterculture, mm-hmm. people who wanted to be free to smoke marijuana and not get harassed by the government, right. and the libertarian right, yep. which gets kick- kicked out, famously kicked out of the Young Americans for Freedom, <laughs> um, that, that there was a, there was a, a really... Um, interesting intersection there of ideologies about freedom yeah and you know, people like david farber have written a little bit about this too and others it's, yeah. it, but um so what i was struck by was was trying to to puzzle together a little bit more how in in everyday life people who weren't systematically working out political theories 
we're mixing together different ideas about uh, what it might mean to be a free and individual, unconstrained individual. And, you know, this is coming out of the feeling the constraints of um, 50s America and, and, mm-hmm. uh, and the post, uh, post-World post War II cultural conformity. So that had, you know, libertarianism didn't just mean, you know, uh, blocking Obamacare, it meant stopping the <laughs> Vietnam War. I mean, right, 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 right. That was libertarianism. Yeah. Um, but at the same time, people, I think very quickly, many people in the counterculture uh, realized and said, okay, well, well, now what do we do? I mean, if we throw off all of the old order and try to start from scratch, we need to think pretty seriously about questions of community bonds and obligation mm-hmm. and um, and commitment and, and and that level of engagement I think often either gets caricatured as kind of smarmy hippie you know hand holding right or it gets dismissed as well they you know threw everything off and then we got Charlie Manson right which is true. <laughs> But isn't which, which of course is only one story yeah, of yeah. of the of the madness of of that time. But even you know the, the biography came out of Manson recently is saying you know this guy has existed in different forms throughout history. You know, I right. mean, he's a demigod. He's, he's someone who who had followers. I mean, what else is new, right? Right. It happened exactly. in the counterculture. Perhaps it was it was they were more able to follow him because of a certain amount of freedom or something, but. It wasn't a product of the kind of stuff that you're talking about. That's right. And one place where you see this really dramatically is in San Francisco, mm-hmm. um, in the aftermath of the Summer of Love. Yeah. And actually, as it's starting to happen, the you know you have this kind of neighborhood scene of students and artists and musicians and um, developing in the Haight Ashbury, yeah. which has its own fascinating history as a kind of integrated working class San Francisco neighborhood. <laughs> That's right. Yeah. <laughs> so, um, you know, you, you begin to get this little art scene within a, that community, which in San Francisco had was a working class community that had a kind of, if not a Bohemian tradition, a tolerance of Bohemian people. Yeah. Like the East village. Yeah, exactly. And, um, what you see in the source materials around the, the emerging summer of love moment is all of these people who had been active in this little world saying, mm-hmm. "Wait a minute, we need to we need mm-hmm. to like get mattresses for yeah. all these people." Yeah, yeah, exactly. <laughs> you know, right. Where are all these Where are all these people going to stay? Who's going to take care of them? And you know, you have the development of places like the um, Haight Ashbury Health Clinic. Right. Yeah. Um, but but there's a real sense of um, worry and concern and communal, uh, I mean, almost, uh, civic thinking, yeah. really even better than communal thinking, because they kind of turn to the San Francisco city government and say, look, we'll work with you to try to figure out, you know, how do we make sure people are okay? Yeah. In, in just the way you're talking about the, 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 the Woodstock, the planning for Woodstock. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I think that's the kind of, when I, when I invoke the tradition of communitarianism, that's what I want people to yeah pay attention to not not the kind of part of the counterculture which was well we all if we all just hold hands everything will be fine no i mean i, I think you did a great job of just uh, uh dismissing the slogans that right i think many of us have, have been too caught up in when it comes to 
what flows from the counterculture, from that term. And uh, I think this is uh, one of the things that no doubt will be uh, noted as, uh, as, a, as a, a contribution from, from your book is that you have, if not alone, but you have certainly placed the counterculture in a much broader, much more serious context than it's been given by, than most people. You know? That's right. Yeah. That's right. And, and again, I think that goes back to our earliest um, point in our yeah. conversation yeah. about pleasure. Right. Yeah. <laughs> Which is that, you know, people also had a really good time a lot yeah. of the time. Yeah. They had some they had some awful times and terrible times, but uh, driving a lot of the especially rock music yeah. in this moment was the was the was fun and pleasure and what I kind of try to call making a, a kind of pun, a play on words, yeah. a serious fun. Yeah. You yeah. Know, serious fun in both senses that it was, um, I mean, an, an example, I mean, the first chapter of the book is all about the acid tests. Yeah. Uh, famously put on by Ken Gizzi and his group of merry pranksters mm -hmm. and chronicled by Tom Frank and the electric Kool-Aid acid test, which I still think is a really fascinating book. Yeah. Um, what I wanted to think about was how the, you had Kesey and the pranksters. I mean, they were always dressing up in American flags and talking about. They really were interested in questions of American citizenship, and they were particularly interested in citizenship in the context of the sort of technological wonder world of the post-war years of abundance and plenty in America. What, what did it mean to be an American citizen in a, in a world of technological wonder? And. Um, what I kind of say at, at one point in the book was that they really what what the acid tests were were parties. Yeah. But they turned partying into a kind of intellectual activity. Yeah, I mean, when you I mean, have you spoken to Tom Wolf? I've all? never gotten to speak with him. No. I mean, I'm I'd be really really curious how he sees that first part of your book um, because I mean. One of the, one of the nice things about it about your chapters is that you are taking I think Wolf more seriously than he's been taken in quite some quite some time yeah. as well you know yeah that's right that's I, you know I hadn't thought about that at all because um, he was the first one yeah. to sort of intellectualize it a little bit I mean he was he was writing it obviously for a popular audience to say you know this is something that most of you who are reading this article will never participate in so here's a glimpse at you know this naughty world but at the same time I think he was he got close to these folks he got uh, he had insight I think that that's still genuine uh, genuinely interesting as you as you suggest yeah. I think that's right. You know, one of the things he does in that book is his intellectual. I mean, here's a guy who was studying American studies at mm -hmm. Yale before he became a journalist. But mm -hmm. I think he turns to a religious framework to make sense of Wolf. Uh, sorry, to make sense of Kesey yeah. and the pranksters, yeah. which is which I think is still a very powerful, um, <laughs> absolutely interpretive framework. It is absolutely. And, yeah. <laughs> And um, and he of course he has a lot of fun with it too. Right. And, and he and he gets across the pleasure. I mean, it, his book is really. I mean, it is very interesting for us to think about in terms of its stylistic adventurousness yeah. and yeah. how, in order to get at some of the important historical qualities of this period, you have to think carefully about how you're going to write about it. Um, yeah. It it raises questions about historical style, historical yeah. writing style. Yeah. Um, and his book, of course, is a great example of, of that. And, and, and I think that I try to touch on this a little bit in my book, um, which is 
which are the kind of religious dimensions of the counterculture and rock music. Yeah. Uh, as part, as in the mix of these questions about citizenship yeah. and community and, and uh, belonging, social belonging. I mean, I would say, just to finish up one last thought on the question of citizenship. Sure. For me, uh, the, the simple, the, the way that I would, would put it is, um, the, the, the idea of citizenship was productive for me because it made me think about individual subjectivity and social belonging <laughs> and how those two are always in play. Um, Give me an example of what you're talking about. So uh, let's see, what would be a good example of this? Um, I think, well, let's stick with the acid tests while we're there. Yeah, right. right. Yeah, the, the acid tests were most famous, of course, because people took LSD at them when it was still legal. Right. Yeah, right. <laughs> and, 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 um, and, and many people hone in on, 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 uh, as uh, you know, rightfully so on that, on the drugs as, as being at the core of the event. But the other thing that Keezy and the pranksters were up, were interested in was technology. Mm-hmm. And they would come in, they would come into these spaces and they would, they were buying all of this, cutting-edge uh, recording and amplification equipment, yeah. Yeah. Um, using the money from the proceeds from... Akizi was using the proceeds from One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest. Yeah, test. amazing. And, and they would wire up these uh, spaces like the Fillmore Auditorium to, uh, to create uh, multimedia environments. And what a lot of them talk about it, I mean, if you read interviews with someone like Carolyn Adams Garcia, Mountain Girl, uh-huh. um, she'll talk about um, how w- what was really interesting in these spaces was that you would come into them and you would talk in into a microphone in one part of the room. And then 10 minutes later, you would hear what you'd been saying 10 minutes earlier come out in some other part of the room. Right. And you're thinking, yeah, this is, this is pretty cool. I mean, where else are you doing this? You know, uh, right. right. And, and so this was, you know, it was trippy and it was crazy and sure. it was fun. But she says in one of this quote that I love, and she says, well, this was, it was also a kind of experiment in democracy, which was yeah. to say, yeah. uh, what did it mean for us and these other people to get into this technologically intensified space? And we can include LSD as a technology here if, sure. we, wanna, sure. if we want to, and, and, and kind of say, well, what kinds of, in, what, did it, what happened for her as an individual in that space? Yeah. And what happened for the people she was with, some of them she knew and some of whom were strangers, yeah. as they had to interact in this um, almost warlike space of technological medi- mediation? Yeah. 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 How are they going to get through it? I mean, it was, I mean, Ken Kesey would always say these really were tests. Um, hmm. And so that's one example from, from San Francisco of, of, um, of thinking about citizenship in a way that is pretty far from, you know, traditional thinking about voting and, and uh, legal rights and obligations. I mean, it is about obligation here and it's about, but it's about the making of the self and the making of community in the context of technological forms, whether they be amplification, rock music, LSD, um, other kinds of mediating form. Yeah. So let me ask you this, because, you know, you, you really um, have a very complex view of these different ways that, that citizenship formed culturally in, in these different communities among these different people. And you use the term uh, Cold War America 
I think in some ways as both context and contrast to mm. uh, your different uh, venues of citizenship. Can you explain a little bit about, I mean, this is going to sound sort of, sort of funny, but how do you use Cold War America in this book? <laughs> oh, what a great question. Um, I think for me, the, the way I use it is, let me think about this. One way is just to name a kind of time period. Okay, that's yeah, that, that makes um, sense. You know, at a really yeah. basic level, like okay, right, we're like dealing post-war. with this, yeah. this kind of post-war yeah. moment, and and um, you know, historians of other time periods get mad when you say post when a 20th century American historian says <laughs> post-war because they say, well, well, which war? Yeah, right. We appropriate so, it. Yeah. You know, this is about that that period in American life where um, where the the after effects of the depression and World War II are are being felt and, and are resonating in, in all kinds of ways mm-hmm. and particularly of course in the in the context of this um, struggle between the United States and the Soviet Union mm-hmm. but the other way that I really wanted to use Cold War America was to talk about the the famous military industrial complex or mm-hmm. in this case as my use of the terms hit capitalism and hit militarism suggest, um, what I was struck by was a kind of cultural logic that linked together consumerism and militarism Mm -hmm. and did so both in the domestic U.S. and globally. Okay, yeah. So what what we're really talking about here when we talk about the counterculture is a kind of cultural formation concerned with questions of citizenship in this broad way that we've been talking about, as it emerged within this uh, structural reality of American empire. Okay, yeah. And an American empire which was both cultural and um, militaristic. Yeah. Yeah, political, yeah, yeah. So that it was, so, you know, that's why going to Vietnam became important for me. Absolutely. Right, because not only were there these really interesting connections between and San Francisco was one of the main departure and arrival points for GIs going to Southeast yeah, Asia. Yeah, yeah. So you have these really distinctive kind of trans-Pacific endpoints yeah. of Vietnam and San Francisco. That's right. Um, but but beyond that, there are two really good examples of the counterculture erupting within this larger context of American cultural and military empire. I was, and so I think for me, Cold War America is really about signaling that that larger yeah. moment of, of, um, of, uh, of American global power. Because I was thinking as I was reading your book that this your book would be paired nicely with Stephen Whitfield's book on the culture of the Cold War. Right. You know? Uh, right, that's right. Yeah, because I do think you're both getting at these uh, these larger issues of how, whether it's technology or movies, or whatever, it's they're, they're mediums, they're places where people are trying to figure out um, new ways to interact with each other. And and for the first time, it's by the 1960s, it is abundantly clear to Americans that they are an empire in a way that they've never really been before and that that, that empire is based on weapons that could annihilate them as well as half the world. You know, it's, it's got to be, right. it's a strange feeling. But I was just, I was showing today, my, in, in, uh, I teach a class on movies in American culture, I was showing um, uh, Hearts of Darkness uh, about the making of Apocalypse Now. Mm-hmm. And it was struck me because uh, Coppola speaks about 
his production of the movie very much the way that you speak about the contrast between Cold War America and Vietnam. Yeah, he was, you know, he was saying when he, they were filming the helicopter scene um, that you know, when America goes abroad, it has it makes everything into a big production. It's a big show, you know, <laughs> and you have to understand it is. I found this, you know, so interesting. He says it's it's sure it's it's a war, but it's also popular culture. You know, yeah. I thought that's that's fascinating. But that yeah, it, there is a conception that you have to make the war look like you think war is supposed to look for a great empire in the nineteen sixties. <laughs> you know, I mean, it's it's such. I mean, the more that I studied Vietnam, the the, the stranger and stranger, yeah, it, it, and closer to apocalypse now. It seemed to me it was. Well, I was going to say now, John Milius in in the movie in this documentary, he says exactly the thesis of your book. He says uh, Vietnam was the first rock war. Yeah, and 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 I think you know that I think Michael Herr was a consultant, yeah, or, or even one of the writers of Apocalypse Now. But you know, dispatches. Yeah, <laughs> was like actually you, uh, interesting to pair dispatches with with um, electric Kool Aid acid. Yeah, with Wolf. Yeah, these are these are two books that are I think thinking, trying to make sense intellectually of this mm-hmm. dizzying moment. I mean, it's it's important. Of course, a lot of the you know, as with most modern wars, a lot of life in Vietnam was just was for U.S. soldiers was about boredom. Right, and in that way. You know, the war not only was the war um, a rock war, but it was it was also it was a rock war precisely because it was also a war that was fought based on managerial strategies that came out of uh, out of um, uh, mass consumer America. Right. It was a nine to five war. It was a war where people were promoted in on models of the modern corporation. That's right. A corp- yeah, the corporatization um, of, of, of the military and of war. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. And so, it, you know, it's interesting to think about rock music. We, we tend to think of rock as as a um, as something different from from that it, it, precisely as a response to or a breaking away from that that uh, Cold War conformist model of managerial consumer capitalism. Yeah. And, and but I think one of the things we might notice historically in, by going to Vietnam, where you see that corporate model kind of mapped onto the waging war, is that rock music and the popular cultural rebellions they they're they're so connected to the boredom and the alienation of that particular industrial system. Hmm. Um, rather than industrial, probably the better way to say it would be that that particular managerial. System. That's exactly right. Yeah. Right. Um, and and so you know, so one could say, in a sense, I mean, this is where thinking about hip capitalism and hip militarism to me is important. Yeah. Rather than continuing to to make a strong binary between this uh, rationalized technocratic managerial mode of capitalism that we think of as mass consumerism in the post-war era, in Cold War America, it's better to think about the, the, the dialectic of rock music kind of springing out of that hmm. context and then folding back into it and springing out of it and folding back into it yep. repeatedly. Yeah, that's great. And it's, that's it. I mean, it's not, it's not an easily delineated um, trend or theme uh, because people are living it. And they're living it in different right. ways and they're interacting with each other because they're living it together, you know? That's also, I think, what, what, why it, I was also drawn to the work of Nicholas Brommel, who wrote this hmm. 
mem- kind of historical memoir about rock and drugs in the 60s yeah. as someone who came of age in, in that time period. And yeah. he, he really tried <laughs> to make sense of it. He turned to William James's ideas about <laughs> radical pluralism. Yeah, that's crazy. Yeah. As, any good, as any good 60s druggie would, <laughs> who had any smarts, you know, you've got to go right. to William James to right. give you some credibility there with using drugs. But, oh, that's great. Um, but, but, but I think in a way... This kind of psychedelic thinking was, as a kind of radical pluralistic thinking, was a way to try to understand oppositionality and multi multifaceted experience that was kind of part of the dominant system, but not part of it all at the same time. These were pe- that's where people were really grappling intellectually with um, serious ideas about well, how do you make a politics out of that? Yeah. Um, and they were drawn upon their experiences, their their, per, their perceptual experiences of rock music and, yeah. and drugs to as a kind of basis for trying to, and you know, and, and I don't know how far they got, but it, but it's interesting to remember historically oh, yeah. that they were trying. Well, Michael, do you think? I mean, what you've done here is is you you know, this is clearly uh, the framework applied to Vietnam. I, I imagine, and tell me if I'm wrong, you could apply it to World War II or Korea or World War One that there are mediums, including music, that you could look at those wars and find something uh, that we haven't noticed before. Right. I mean, I think what you you might also find some of the structures of how those wars were imagined, as you were suggesting, how they were imagined as productions mm-hmm. and also how they were managed. Yeah. yeah. Turning up in in um, in the in the question of morale i mean i got i mean morale is such a fascinating i agree i agree honor morale uh uh uh, devotion faith yeah yeah right how do we keep and 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 look at the the kind of deterioration of morale in the in the vietnam context from uh from uh emphasizing honor and virtue and chivalry right. to you know morale i mean my friend meredith lair has written this wonderful book about consumerism in vietnam mm-hmm. um called armed with abundance <laughs> um she she was a person who who also helped me to think through some of these questions with rock in particular that's great but in vietnam morale really becomes about getting a taste of consumer pleasure in return in exchange for putting in your hours sure. at the factory as it were oh my yeah yeah and um and and rock music is kind of erupts within that opening yeah, yeah. Uh, that consumerism you know if opens up for people who are in these very alienating yeah divisions between their productive life i mean i don't know if you can call it war productive life but in their work life and their well and their yeah. off time but what you were saying is basically I mean, is is true i mean that the war was managed in a way that looked uh familiar to um the way the corporate structure had taken over work in america uh, that's right yeah i mean it, there have been great books and you cite quite a few of them about the idea of work and its evolution in uh late 19th century and 20th century america you know, when I was when I was reading through your book, I thought about uh, the transnational angle as well, the international angle. I was wondering if you um, encountered Jeremy Surrey's book, Power and Protest, about the 1960s, yeah. and how you how you used it or played against it or something. Right. Well, Jeremy's. I mean, I'm thinking also about this wonderful article he wrote about the global 1968, which I right. think is kind of connected to the book as well. Oh yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Um, 
in in some ways our work is i mean it's quite different in that he's interested in well let's start with the similarities i think one thing i learned from jeremy's work was was uh it confirmed my notion of taking culture seriously okay yeah because what jeremy does is he's really thinking about diplomatic history Mm -hmm. and international affairs but unlike other diplomatic historians in the more traditional trainings he wants to see how culture is figuring yeah, and how they respond in, to it yeah yeah how culture is figuring in these in these um you know in the in the diplomatic interactions between say the u.s and the soviet union right and i mean what i think of in his work is what he treats as countercultural is quite broad in the mm. sense that i mean i think betty Friedan is included for him right in in um in the kind of people who were who kind of harnessed the competition between the U.S. and the Soviet Union to prove that their system was better mm-hmm. for its citizens. Mm-hmm. Right. Um, people like everyone from Fredan to hippies right. are all kind of able to turn that that competition to open up new possibilities, whether it be for women or for African-Americans or um, or for young people, so on and so forth. Yeah. Um, in, when I started to think about the transnational part of the story, it kind of came out of the CBC band story. Yeah, yeah. And I thought, well, here's a group that is um, interested not just in being citizens of the United States. In fact, they weren't that interested in being citizens of the United States. Mm-hmm. They were interested in becoming citizens of the counterculture. Yeah. And that's a little bit, I think, so this is a little different from Jeremy's work. Yeah, I, mean, you, I agree. If, if, unless you, I would be interested if you think it isn't, because... I, I was interested at the end of the book in how there's a little spark of a different nation, which co- people at the time start to call Woodstock Nation. Right. That's why, and, I, yeah, transnational Woodstock, yeah. Yeah, and, and I kind of, the more I thought about the CBC, and then I started to read about the effects of rock music in other parts of the world, mm-hmm. whether it be, say, in the Tropicalia movement in Brazil or in the um, uh, kind of appearance of rock music in, in a, a Mexican counterculture that Eric Zolov writes mm-hmm. wonderfully about mm-hmm. in the book Refried Elvis, or in um, Africa, where you have um, young people in these social clubs in Bamako and Mali trying to organize a Woodstock festival for Bamako, which is a very conservative country, but for them it's all about uh, and Malik Sadibi, um, the uh, sorry, no, not, it, the photographer takes these wonderful pictures. That um, uh, is his name, Manthea Diawara. Mm-hmm. He's a um, the the cinema uh, scholar and uh, from West from Mali. Okay, um, writes about this um, coming of age in this world where. Um, you're, it's in a recently decolonized country as a young person. How do you be modern? Yeah. <laughs> well, how you be modern in the late '60s and early '70s was by tuning into yeah. youth culture and counterculture and yeah. rock music and yeah. and um, so what, what I started to see coming out of the CBC story was not just Woodstock Nation, but what we might better call the Woodstock Transnational. Yeah. Which was a vision of a kind of nation constituted out of the circulation of rock music that people could belong to and feel a sense of, I mean, we might even say feel a sense of citizenship in. 
Now, I think, um, yeah, I think that's where the differences between you and, and Jeremy's work. Jeremy sees sees the definition or the um, uh, the understanding of counterculture from the top down, and I think you you were really looking at it from very much the bottom up. Right. I mean, Jeremy, I think, would say that he wants to understand how the bottom up forces of protest Change. are shaping. Right. Yeah. right. How are those putting pressure on? Uh, someone like Henry Kissinger. Yeah, they have right, they have to respond in some way. How do they do right. it? Yeah, they don't want to, both in the U.S. and in the oh, Soviet Union. They right. really would rather not have right. to. Right, but they have to. <laughs> and 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 so it, he there is a real. I mean, what I love about his work is that there's a kind of recognition of how agency from the bottom up might be at play in yeah. the highest levels of diplomatic and governmental right. negotiation. Right. I think in my story, I'm interested in something weirder, something a little more like what Griel Marcus famously called the this invisible republic yeah. when he wrote about the, the basement tapes of the band and Bob Dylan. Yeah. This is like, you know, a kind of republic of letters. It's except yeah. here it's a republic of amplified, yeah. commodified music notes. No, and that's really well put. That yeah, what but you just said. Yeah. You know, what is that exactly? And yeah. how do we take it seriously? Because people at the time it I mean, it kept people alive. And the C B C then it was their dream yeah. to be participants in this global uh, counterculture in the Woodstock Transnational, to par- to belong to it and participate in it as modern young Vietnamese. Yeah. And so, and that's going on all over the place. It's going on with uh, Gilberto Gil and Caetano Veloso and their friends in Brazil. It's going on in Mexico. It's it's even going on in the Soviet Union. Yeah. yeah. Where you have these young people who start becoming what are called hippie, H-I-P-P-I, who want to um, kind of borrow from what they're whatever they can get their hands on and ears on from the West. That's, yeah. It's going on in in, uh, the, in Czechoslovakia with the plastic people of the universe yep. who inspire Vaclav Havel. That's right. Um, oh. So you see, I mean, I think that this, let's call it a, an invisible republic or a republic of letters or a republic of sound or a republic of rock. Yeah, exactly. You know, <laughs> that's the... That that um, that nation is something that we I think we have trouble um, giving uh, a sense of um, importance to and significance to because it is so ephemeral yeah. and yet so important to people. But you know what? You've done a great job with it, Michael. And I, I want to wrap us up here because what you've just said, I think, is uh, you, you've put in just a, a few sentences better than uh, than I could in the many pages I wrote about this book. Uh, what what makes it so interesting and what the, the uh, underlying, the fundamental purpose of the book was. Uh, I think you've, you've wrapped it up beautifully. So Michael Kramer, uh, stay on the line. But let me conclude by saying thank you for uh, letting us interview you on new books in intellectual history and for talking about your book, The Republic of Rock, Music, and Citizenship in the 60s Counterculture. You've been listening to an interview with Michael J. Kramer on his book, The Republic of Rock, Music, and Citizenship in the 60s Counterculture. I'm Ray Haberski. Thank you for listening. <laughs>